thank you very much, worship team. And I'd like to welcome all of you to the uh, third, and this is going to be the final uh, outdoor gathering for our church this year. Um, What I've said on the front end of all of these is uh, the reason that we wanted to do this Uh, The final Sundays of July, August, and September is because the last 18 months have have, um, been just so incredibly disruptive to local churches. And, uh, you know, with people um, no longer attending that used to attend a church, people beginning to attend a church for the first time, and so many people kind of, you know, moving from one church to the other. And, And so with all of that disruption and that interruption... Uh, we, and, and really all local churches, and, and really every individual to a degree, we've been presented with at least two things in the midst of this. We've been presented with a need and an opportunity. Uh, the need is the need for us to get reacquainted with ourselves and really reestablished as a community, uh, which is certainly a, a part of why, um, you know, we're doing these picnics uh, because, you know, our hope, especially if you're, if you're new here or maybe you've been around a while but you're feeling disconnected, our hope is that you'd stick around, get some good food, meet some good people, form some good relationships with people that can help you, you know, walk out the life that God's called you to walk uh, together. Uh, and so that's the need. But the opportunity that we've been presented with is the opportunity to take this time to really take a moment and think critically about what kind of community we're called to become. All right, I think uh, generally speaking, churches have adopted you know, at kind of either end of the end of the spectrum, uh, two mindsets through all of this. One mindset is a mindset that says, all right, let's just hurry up and get through this so we can get back to what we were doing before. And personally, I don't think that is the best mindset to have. Uh, my conviction, our conviction um, as, as the leaders of this church is that it's the churches that take this time to really take a breath and, and think critically about what changes we can make from the way that we, do, we were doing things so that we might become a community that better reflects God's heart for his church. It's those churches that are going to get through this thing and on the other side of this thing uh, much stronger and much healthier than they were even beforehand. And so that really, those two ideas really constitute the why behind these outdoor gatherings. It's not just about helping us figure out who we are, but also providing a little bit of vision about who uh, we're going to become. And so for all three of these outdoor services, we've been asking the question, what kind of community are we called to become? And today we're going to answer that question for the third and, and final time today, and we're going to look at what it means to become a community of mission. Uh, when I was thinking about that topic, it was not very hard to figure out which text in Scripture I wanted to read. I want to uh, read one of the most famous passages in Scripture directly uh, from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. It comes at the end of Matthew's gospel account. It's Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It says, Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Um, The passage that we're looking at today is is, uh, often famously referred to as the Great Commission. It's a speech that Jesus gave after his resurrection to his disciples, and, and it's a speech that really answers the question, what does Jesus desire his church to actually do? 
All right, if you have joined us for, for the first two outdoor gatherings, uh, the questions that we were looking at there, and really the words of Jesus that we were looking at there, answered the question, what does he want us to be? And we, we said that Jesus wants us to be a, a community that's marked by holiness. He wants us to be a community that's marked by oneness. But here Jesus is answering the question, what does he actually want us to do? And the answer could not be any more clear. Jesus' desire is that his followers would take his message to the ends of the earth so that one more person might have their life transformed by Jesus. And so what I want to do today is ask four questions of, of uh, Jesus' words here. And, and look at the Great Commission from four different angles. I want to look at who it's for. I want to look at what it's about. Uh, I want to look at how we're supposed to go about it. And then lastly, the promise that we can hold on to as we do. So the first question that I wanted uh, to walk through today is the question, who is this commission actually for? Because in my time as a pastor, what I've discovered is that not everybody agrees um, on that particular question. For instance, uh, over the last several years, I have, have heard people tell me that the Great Commission applies only to the 11 disciples that Jesus personally gave it to, uh, that the end of the age that Jesus talks about here was 70 AD, and so basically uh, this passage of Scripture has absolutely no bearing or no application for Christians today. Now, I don't know how common of a viewpoint that is, but it is something that I've heard. What I think is far more common is a sort of unspoken mindset that this, this command still applies today, but it really specifically only applies to a, a unique subset of Christians that are specially trained or gifted. You know, for instance, a couple years ago, I remember um, someone called me up and they were telling me about how they worked with somebody who's going through a really tough time. They're seeking answers about God, and, and they chased that by saying, anyway, I think they're ready to hear the gospel, so can I give them your phone number? And, and I think that mindset that only a, um, you know, a specially trained kind of quote-unquote professional Christian is qualified to do what Jesus is talking about here, I think that's more common maybe than, than even we realize. So let me just first begin by 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 asking the question, who's this commission for? Was it just for the 11 disciples turned apostles? Uh, is it just for Christian leaders or is it for every follower of Jesus? And I want to answer that question by looking first at scripture, but then also at church history. All right, the, uh, the, the book of Acts, uh, which we've taught through a, a number of times, we were actually walking through it uh, last summer when we were outdoors. Uh, the book of Acts records the, the birth and the kind of the, the early development of the church. And if you read through it, you'll note that uh, the first several chapters really center on the apostles. They're kind of the central figures. They're the ones doing the teaching and the leading, and the church is growing by the thousands as a result of that. But when you get to Acts chapter 8, what you'll read is that a, a very severe, very intense persecution broke out against the church, which up until that time was still... Um, located pretty much exclusively in Jerusalem. And that persecution marked a profound shift for God's people because in verse 1, it says that everyone except the apostles were scattered from Jerusalem as a result of the persecution that broke out that day. And in verse 4, it says that all of those who were scattered, meaning literally everyone except the apostles who remained in Jerusalem, it says all of those who were scattered 
preached the message uh, of the kingdom, the gospel, as they went. And what that passage of scripture shows us is that really from the beginning of the church, followers of Jesus uh, assumed and believed that it was every follower of Jesus's responsibility to carry this message with them. Now, that's something that we're kind of implicitly shown there in, in Acts, but as you read through the New Testament, um, specifically the epistles, uh, that, that only gets more explicit. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17, uh, Paul wrote, this is one of the, I think, the most encouraging verses in Scripture. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and, and look new things have come. That's a passage of scripture that for thousands of years, people have turned to when they begin feeling the weight of shame and guilt and condemnation and wondering, you know, am I really any different than I was before I met Jesus? And has there really been a change in me? That passage of scripture, that verse says there has been a change in you. And it's more than just a coat of paint that in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation regardless of of how you think or how you feel about yourself. But it's actually what Paul says just after that, that I want to focus on here. Paul said, everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, Paul was writing to the Corinthians there. And if you know anything about the Corinthians, you know they're not the straight-A students of the New Testament. If a local church could have a problem The church at Corinth probably had that problem and probably celebrated the fact that they had it because they didn't even have the common sense to know that it was wrong. And yet when Paul wrote to them, he didn't say, I am an ambassador for Christ. He said, we are because God has given this message of uh, this this ministry of reconciliation to us. Uh, Now, I could continue through scripture to talk about this idea, but but let me just pivot here for a moment and and, kind of talk through through church history and bring us to today. One of the things, even if you didn't find any of that convincing, one of the things that that at least all of us on this field today have in common, and and probably everyone joining us on the other side of, of these cameras have in common, is that we're not standing in Jerusalem. We're standing in a part of the world that didn't even exist as far as those uh, original 11 recipients of the Great Commission were concerned. They had no concept that, that where we're standing even existed. And yet here we are today worshiping Jesus Christ. And I, I just want to r- remind you, because I think we're quick to forget this, but it's a powerful thing to remember, that the only reason we have even heard the name of Jesus is because for the last 2,000 years, Men and women who have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus knew that this great commission was never meant to dead end on the 11 men who originally received it back in Matthew chapter 28. So first and foremost, the great commission is for absolutely every single follower of Jesus, all right? Moving forward from that, the second question that I like to get into today is is what is this commission actually about? What is it? Uh, And and you find an answer to that in, in verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. All right, now if I can zoom out from this for a minute, what Jesus is calling his followers to do here is what's known as proselytizing. And just in case you weren't aware, although I'm, I'm, I'm confident that you probably are, proselytizing is seen as a terrible thing in our culture. Because our culture, uh, sociologists have actually pointed out something really interesting, that the culture of, of, um, that we live in today, of our society, in so many ways is actually returning to the culture of the Roman Empire in which the early church was born and raised. Um, because like the Roman Empire, our culture can be um, sort of described in two different ways. We're pluralistic and we're relativistic. Uh, when you hear that we're a pluralistic society, what that means is that we're a society uh, made up of a lot of different people who have a lot of different belief systems. And there have been a whole lot of societies throughout human history that weren't like that, where everybody basically had the same belief system. That's not the case in our society. You drive down Ritchie Highway, you're going to hear a lot of different worldviews. But in addition to being a pluralistic society, we're also a relativistic society. And a relativistic society is marked by a mindset that says, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth. And so our culture is, is generally okay with everybody believing whatever they want to believe as long as nobody says that what they believe is right and what somebody else believes is wrong. And so this idea of being called to proselytize with this very exclusive truth claim that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God, that idea is seen as, as archaic, it's seen as uh, offensive, and, and I think increasingly that's, that's even beginning to be seen as a dangerous thing in, in our society. So, so if I could, let me just uh, speak to that for a moment. <clears throat> and all I'd like to point out, without getting too far into this, is that Every human being alive proselytizes because the, the human heart cannot help but evangelize. What I mean by that is every single human being moves through life with beliefs that are faith claims, that they cannot quantify using the scientific method, that they cannot help but push on other people. Um, it, it, everyone does this. Anyone who's ever held an opinion about anything believes at least three things. Number one, their opinion is right. Number two, uh, people with different opinions are wrong. And number three, the world would be a better place if more people had their opinion. And even if you're a person who, 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 who you know, subscribes to the idea that, you know, I, I think everybody should be able to have their own beliefs, but nobody should be able to push their beliefs on anybody else, I would say, congratulations, that's your belief that you're attempting to push on other people who don't think like you. So everybody proselytizes, and that's what Jesus is calling his people to do here. And what he says to do is to go and make disciples. Now, I think generally speaking, there's a shared understanding about what making disciples means. It means, first off, telling people what Jesus has done for them. Uh, it means inviting them to follow him. And then thirdly, it means telling them what a life of following Jesus is supposed to look like according to Jesus. So with, without getting too far into that, the only thing that I want to um, pull out here and, and, and focus on is just the first word that Jesus gives us here on the front end of this great commission. It's this word, go. Jesus didn't just say make disciples. He said go and make disciples. Now, when Jesus calls his followers to go, he's obviously not saying to leave the physical location you were in when you met him to go to some far off land because 
like I said earlier, we're living in a far-off land as far as the first 11 recipients of this command were concerned. When Jesus says go, which is a, it's a Greek word that, that is, it's a lot deeper um, and more meaningful than the English translation gives it credit for. But when Jesus says go, what he's, what he's driving at there is that every single follower of Jesus is called to live an outward-facing life. Um, see, the, the, the human heart, one of the, one of the most natural instincts of the human heart is to sink into itself. And, and what all human beings uh, have always had a tendency to do is to naturally default to a position in which we surround ourselves with people who look like us and live like us and, th- and think like us and, and believe like us. I remember I was listening to a guy named Nate Bargetze. He's a famous comedian. He moved from Nashville to, um, to New York. And he was talking about how excited he was to go to New York because he always heard it was a melting pot. And he was kind of, you know, comically pointing out that when he got to New York, he found that it was what everybody says it was. You know, it's, it's this really, you know, diverse uh, city made up of all kinds of different peoples of different, you know, you know, races and classes and ethnicities and all this kinds of stuff. But what he found is that, that all of those groups of people uh, sort of became closed in on themselves and didn't want to spend time with any different group of people. And so the way that he described New York was basically the cafeteria of a big, a really big high school where kids of like-minded nature kind of sit at the same table and don't want anything to do with each other. That's the natural default of the human heart. And because that's the default of the human heart, that's what churches who are made up of people who have human hearts tend to naturally default to. And over time, what will naturally happen is that churches will kind of sink in on themselves uh, and become basically a, um, a retreat center you know, more like a, uh, an escape from the big bad world than anything else. And maybe when you hear that, you think, well, what's the problem with that? Because the world is pretty big, and it is pretty bad, and it would be nice to escape from it. Uh, the, the problem with that is that Jesus here did not say, stay and be disciples. He said to go and make them. And so the idea of this commission that, that Jesus has charged his followers with What it's fundamentally about is about being a community of people, an outward-facing community of people that exists to see one more person have their life transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this this is fundamentally about. Now, the next question I wanted to get at today uh, that I think is is probably the most disputed aspect of the Great Commission, at least uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'll get into that in a minute, is is how is, are, are we actually supposed to go about it? In other words, how is this really supposed to look and feel and, and, and what mindset and what attitude is meant to pervade the way that the church goes about accomplishing this commission? Uh, and the answer, according to Jesus's, Jesus's words here, really could not be any more clear. Uh, the way that we go about this is under the authority of King Jesus. All right, in verse 18... Just before Jesus actually prescribes the Great Commission, verse 18 says, uh, Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, when Jesus made that statement, I don't think he was saying, when he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, I don't think Jesus was saying, I'm the boss now and you have to listen to me. Uh, The reason I don't think that's what Jesus was saying is because I don't think he needed to. 
Because when somebody successfully predicts and pulls off their own death and resurrection, they don't have to tell you that they're the one in charge now. I think that the apostles got that loud and clear. So when I was reading this passage this week, I was asking myself, why just before laying out the Great Commission did Jesus remind his apostles of his authority? Why did he see that um, necessary to put right before this, this commission? And if I can, let me try to get us to where the apostles were when they originally heard these words. Because I, I, I think the, 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 the reason for this becomes clear when we get there. So leading up to this, for, for about three, maybe three and a half years, these apostles... Uh, had, had followed Jesus, literally walked in the footsteps of the Son of God. They had, they had heard him speak with an authority like they'd never heard before. They had seen him perform miracles unlike anything they'd ever seen before. Uh, and they allowed themselves to believe that this really was the one that they'd been waiting for, that their people had been on the edge of their seat waiting for for thousands of years that was, was going to come down here and, and fix everything. By the end of Jesus' ministry, they were confident that this man was who he said he was. And then, of course, on the cross, Jesus did what he so often did uh, throughout his ministry, which is he completely up, un, upended and overturned their understanding of what God was like. Because at Calvary, Jesus proved that he was a king unlike any king that had ever come before him. Because while basically every king in human history has taken life, Jesus proved himself to be a king that came to lay his life down. And he didn't do that just for his friends. He did that even for his enemies. And so when Jesus, on the front end of this commission, says, all authority has, given to, has been given to me, now go and make disciples, what Jesus is saying is, you're going to carry out my commission under my authority. And what that means is that the way you're going to do this is to be informed by what you have just seen me do for you. Now, to me, that has tremendous implications for the church today, because I think most people agree that the church does exist to see a movement of the kingdom of God in our communities and, and towns and cities and cultures where there's a lot of disagreement is, is how that's actually supposed to happen and what that's supposed to be like. And, and one thing that concerns me personally, I don't know if you agree with this or if you've seen this, but, but, but one thing I've noticed is it seems there, there is a growing group of, of Christians and even churches who tend to see the world outside the church as the church's enemies. Uh, and what that's done in, in, in a lot of cases is it's turned the Great Commission from go and make disciples to get on Facebook and win arguments. You know, as though our job is to humiliate and, and coerce and, and, you know, quote unquote, try to conquer our enemies. And pardon me for pointing out that that has not proven to be a highly effective evangelistic strategy. And what's most noteworthy to me is that you will not find that mindset in the apostles in the book of Acts. And that mindset, that view of the world, that view of people who disagreed with them was not, was not even close to something that the early church was known for. Right? The early church, among other things, was known for demonstrating a radical kind of generosity toward even people who didn't share their beliefs which is not something that you saw a lot of in the Roman Empire. We actually have a, a, a letter that survived that was written from Emperor Julian. 
who, who sat on the throne of the, of the Roman Empire in the 300s. He hated Christianity. He wanted to see a revival of paganism. But when he looked out in his own empire at the spread of Christianity, uh, the, the letter that, that's been preserved records him saying, he understood why, why Christianity took off the way that it did. He said, while pagans care for no one and Jews care only for themselves, Christians care for everyone, not only their own, but the pagan needy as well. That's what the early church was known for. You know, they, they were known for, for loving and accepting and embracing and forgiving even people who had done them the most harm. I mean, this is, this is the group of people who, who when Paul, the apostle, after he had done so much damage to the church, after he had ruined people's lives, after he had murdered Christians, when he gave his life to Jesus Christ, that same church that he once terrorized now welcomed him into the family with open arms. There, weren't, there was no other group of people in the Roman Empire willing to show that kind of grace and forgiveness and acceptance except the early church. And the early church was known for, for a willingness to lay their lives down for people that they'd never even met before. You know, we know from historical documents that when plagues would sweep through the Roman Empire, when everyone else would flee, it was the followers of Jesus that stayed behind and cared for the sick and the dying, even if that meant that they were going to get sick and die themselves. And that had really the entire Roman Empire asking the question, well, well what, what's with these people? What, what would motivate a group of people to do something like this? And biblically speaking, the answer is not difficult. The answer is that these people understood the authority under which they operated came from a king who laid his life down for them, even though they'd abandoned him in his greatest hour of need. They understood that the authority under which they operated came from a king who prayed only for the forgiveness of his murderers as his final breaths escaped on the cross. And the, and the authority they operated under came from a king who died so that others might live, and that informed and transformed uh, everything about the way that they lived and everything about the way that they carried this king's message forward. And so what, that, what this means for us today, to, to, to live out the Great Commission under the authority of Jesus Christ, means that the way that we extend the message of salvation to others has to be informed by the way Jesus extended that same salvation to us. It means that our witness should be marked by a persistent, faithful, uh, sacrificial love. And, and of course, we hold to an exclusive truth claim that no one can be made right with, with God except through Jesus Christ. That's, that's, a, that's an offensive truth claim in this culture. I think it's offensive to one degree or another in every culture. And that will inevitably offend a lot of people. But the way that we present that message and the way that we live in light of that message should be anything but offensive. It should be marked by gentleness. It should be marked by kindness. It should be marked by respect and honor and love, even toward people who don't think like us or live like us or believe like us. That's what changed the Roman Empire about 1,700 years ago, and that formula has not changed today. The last thing that I wanted to go over during our time today, <clears throat> we looked at who this commission's for, what it's fundamentally about, how, we, how we're called to go about it, but the fourth and the final thing that I wanted to go over before we conclude is the promise that Jesus has offered us as we live in light of what he's commanded us here. And I'm going to look at the final part of verse 20 where Jesus says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. <clears throat> That's an amazing promise that Jesus has given us here. But as I, as I was, was studying, kind of meditating on this text this week, 
uh, one thing that was so impressed on me is the fact that, that Jesus gave this promise in connection with the Great Commission itself. And what I see here is a promise that, that I have experienced in my life personally, uh, uh, maybe you've experienced in your life as well, but more than anything, I hope that we experience it as a church moving forward. And the promise that Jesus is giving us here when he says, go and make disciples and I will be with you, is a promise that we will experience Jesus himself in deeper and more life-changing ways as we get out of ourselves and live this life that he's calling us to live here. Now, you, you may have heard me tell this story before, but I was uh, 19 years old when God really got a hold of my life, and um, the way that God chose to do that was actually through a friend of mine who was an atheist, and I've, I've shared that with you before, and I kind of get more amazed by that story the older, older that I get. But what I haven't really talked uh, to you all a lot about is what happened in my life immediately after that. Uh, because when, when I was 19 um, and Jesus got a hold of me, I was, uh, I was working at Hollister in the Marley Station Mall. <laughs> and um, and uh, just days after that conversation with my, with my atheist friend, where, where I decided this is going to be my life, uh, you know, my life is, is, is going to be devoted to Jesus. Um, days after that, I remember I was in Hollister. I was in the front room uh, folding clothes, and my manager, his name was Matt, came up to me, and he actually pulled me aside, and he said, hey, what happened to you? because something's different. And, and I've always, that's always been such a source of encouragement for me because it, it, it reminds me even now that Jesus is so powerful that he can transform the way that you fold clothes in a Hollister. <laughs> and, and I, you know, looking back on that time in my life, I, I was not attending, I wasn't attending this church at the time, and I, and I was not attending a particularly missional church I don't think I knew what that was back then. Uh, I didn't have anybody, you know, instructing me about how to share my faith or, or even really telling me that that's what I should be doing. All I knew after Jesus got a hold of me is that I wanted somebody else to come to know him like I did. And so from that moment forward, it was like a switch was flipped and Hollister became my mission field. And I remember taking, I've been thinking about this all week. I remember I would take my, my, my coworkers out to lunch with me and I would ask them what they believed and tell them what I believed and... Um, I found myself praying for them and often getting emotional as I did because I, I just wanted to see them come to know Jesus like I had. I remember my, my manager, at, uh, Matt, asked me to work overtime, and so I bartered with him, and I said, I'll work overtime if you read Romans, and I gave him a hardback New King James Version of the Bible that was laying in the backseat of my Pontiac at the time. And, and, and every Sunday, I had, you know, coworkers that I would take, you know, my, my Hollister coworkers. We had like a row of chairs at church that was filled with, with Hollister models. I would take them to church on Sunday morning and, and Bible studies on Thursday night. And, and the coolest part of that time in my life is it culminated with one of my coworkers giving his life to Jesus. His name was Justin, and he was getting ready to, to, uh, to join the Navy. And we stepped out on a smoke break one time, and we were sitting in my 96 Pontiac talking about life and death and what it's really about. And I asked him if he knew if he was right with God or what would happen. And he said no. And I led him in the sinner's prayer. He gave his life to Jesus Christ right in the parking lot of the Marley Station Mall. And I have often told people that unspeakably horrible things have no doubt taken place in the parking lot of the Marley Station Mall, but that is far and away the greatest thing to ever happen there. 
And it's funny because when, when I think back in that time of my life, all I wanted to do was get out of that time in my life. I, didn't, I never thought it was cool to be working at Hollister. And I definitely did not think making $6.50 an hour was cool. All I wanted to do was get out of that and, and, and be a firefighter so I could finally be proud of myself and, and you know, my, my life could begin. But when I look back on that time in my life when I had first come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ myself, and I was surrounded with people who didn't know him. And every day I was just trying to figure out a way to show them what I had come to see in Jesus. I look back on that now, and that was some of the greatest times of my life, some of the most important times of my life. And, and somebody might hear that now and say, well, you know, you were a young kid and you were just naive. But years after that, when the honeymoon phase of my faith was, was well over, and I was actually serving as the associate pastor of this church, I remember I was driving in uh, to our church on a Sunday morning, and I stopped because I saw a guy on, uh, he was on a bridge on the side of the road. And I pulled over on the way to church, I talked to him, I shared the gospel with him, and I got back in my car and drove into church that meeting, and, and I experienced that Sunday when I got here, in that building right there, I experienced what is to this day, I think, the greatest church service that I've ever been a part of in my life. And it was not because the message or the music was particularly high quality that day. It's because of what Jesus is promising here. It's because the presence of Jesus was manifested to me in a, in a deeper, more personal, more life-giving way as I stepped out in faith and told somebody else what he had done for me. And I remember when I got here, I wrote a little note to a friend of mine, and all it said was, I just preached the gospel to someone, and I have never felt so alive. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. It, it's not that he's not going to be with us unless we tell one person a day about what he's done for us in some kind of legalistic, fear-based way. No, it, it's a promise that we will come to experience him in deeper and more life-changing ways if we'll get out of ourselves and live this life that he's called us to. And I am so positive that if everyone who calls this church home, if every person who called this church home would dedicate themselves to regularly being in the habit of having one person, just one person in your life that you're actively trying to extend the love of Jesus to. I am so positive that this church would come alive. And it's not because I would suddenly be a better preacher or we would suddenly have higher, higher quality services. It's because of what Jesus is, is calling us to here. Leslie Newbigin, a, a famous missionary, put it this way. He said, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is, on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. Simply put, if you want to come to know Jesus in deeper ways and experience him in more life-changing ways, talk to somebody about him. I want to thank you for coming out to the outdoor services this year. We have arrived at the end of our time here, and so I just want to call the worship team up and, 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 and kind of leave you with this. Um, I, I hope that you hear what I'm saying here in the context of, of, of this teaching and, and, and not what I'm not saying here. But when I left the fire department to enter ministry full time, my desire was never to just manage a church. You know, that's not what I was interested in when Jesus first got a hold of my life back in Hollister. And, and it's not what drives me in, in ministry. What, what I want we, we talk about it all the time. It's our vision statement. We put it on the walls and all of our written and digital communication. This is about seeing lives transformed by Jesus. What I would love to see, and I think what you would love to see too if you've come to know Jesus, is your friends 
and your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we would see a movement of God in our communities, through our church, in our lifetimes. It, we are living in, in what I really do believe is the most divided time than, than certainly I've ever experienced in my life. But one of the only things that I think people still pretty much universally agree on is that things in the world are not getting better on their own. You know, I, I don't know anybody that, 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 you know, tunes into the news or looks out in society and says, great, I'm so happy about the way things are moving. And my conviction and maybe your conviction as well is that the only, th- the only thing that is going to truly turn things around for this world is if more people have their lives transformed by Jesus Christ. And the only way that that's going to happen is if people who have already had their life transformed by Jesus Christ care enough to dedicate themselves to this outward-facing life that Jesus is calling us to here. I just want to tell you, that's the kind of church that I want to spend the one life God has given me pastoring. That's the kind of church I want to pastor. That's the kind of church I want to raise my family in. But more important than any of that, that is the kind of community that Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, has called us to become. A community of mission. Let me pray for us. That's it. And that's all. Father God, there is, there is no group of people on the planet that have a better reason and a more powerful motivation for laying our lives down for the sake of those around us than Christians. Because we are the only group of people on the planet that hold to the reality, that understand and are changed by the reality that God entered into human history to live for us, to die for us in our place and rise again for us. And Father, you you have called us to this outward-facing life of extending the truth and the grace of your son Jesus, not for your good, not because you need more cheerleaders, but, but for our good. God, there is no better case scenario for our lives than for us to die to ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus, that your power and your glory might be extended into someone else's life through us. God, would you make us a kind of church that sees that, that sees life change, that sees your power extended in in us and through us into the community you've placed us in. By grace through faith, in the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.